For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some access deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com and use promo code cal for 20 percent off your first order outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems things like hard starts rough performance and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup sea foam can help your engine run better and last longer simply pour a can in your gas tank hunters and anglers rely on sea foam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. That's SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. From Mediator's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to SteelDealers.com. Now... Here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. A small city in Southern California recently became the first municipality in the U.S. to recognize the legal rights of a non-human animal. The Ojai City Council voted 4-1 to last month to give elephants the right to bodily liberty. Quote, the city council intends to adopt an ordinance to codify elephants' fundamental right to bodily liberty thereby prohibiting the keeping of elephants in captive settings that deprive them of their autonomy and ability to engage in their innate behaviors. You might be wondering what motivated this first-of-its-kind ordinance. Is there an elephant being unjustly held captive within city limits? Not exactly. The Non-Human Rights Project explains in a press release that there used to be a captive elephant named Tara that lived in the Ojai Valley and was used for entertainment. This was the 1980s, and people could still be entertained by a roller skating elephant. But Tara is no longer with us, so this ordinance was passed to make sure no other elephant will be subjected to that kind of indignity. Um, Fun fact for you, the last time, and I think only time I was in Ojai, I was uh, subjected to a first and uh, saw uh, somebody shooting up behind the bank of all places. Hopefully Ojai is uh, taking care of that situation. Uh, and moved on to elephants, not in the other order. I'm afraid, need your eight big elephants on parade. Anyway, what the actual ordinance is, elephants can still be held in captivity as long as it's the right kind of jail. The ordinance makes an exception, for example, for elephants held at a sanctuary accredited by the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries. If the sanctuary has not been accredited, it must allow elephants to, quote, exercise their autonomy 
and prohibits elephants from being put on display, bred, or housed in settings that do not closely resemble their natural habitat. But what happens if that's how they're exercising their autonomy as well? Whatever you think about giving legal rights to elephants, you have to admit that calling a prison a sanctuary is one of the best euphemisms out there. Because if you really think elephants have the right to bodily liberty, even the nicest animal sanctuary is still a prison of sorts. Thanks to listener Shane Norwood for sending us that story. This week, we've got hooters, muleys, legislation, and the mailbag. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week was, you know, it was just a hustle. Lots going on. It was, you know, the pheasant and antelope opening season, uh, which is something Snort and I are real, real big fans of. I got sick as a dog, had a shootout in Wyoming. Snort got sick, was puking all over the place. And my grandmother died, Marion Walton, which sucks only in the fact that I can't call her up and ask about a recipe or all manner of like home DIY things that she was good about, like how to cut glass. And we also can't argue about what is actually a word in Scrabble. I can and really should go on and on about this lady, but pertinent to this podcast, my grandmother was born October 12, 1928. That's a time of Zeppelin travel not the band, FDR and Hoover are campaigning for president, and it's still the Great Depression. Hard scrabble folks, familiar with all the off-cuts of meat and a wide variety of game. Just last week, I could call this lady and ask for a recipe for pheasant, trout, smelt, rabbit, gizzards, or liver, and she'd give me the step-by-step off of the top of her head. Food was always a big deal in her house and everyone was expected to chip in and help in some way. It was a great thing to be exposed to. Big kitchen, big family. She had 10 kids. It was eat what's on your plate. Say please, thank you, bless this meal, realize how fortunate we are, then help clean up and cheat at Scrabble, which she would do by laying out a questionable word with absolute certainty, and then defend herself by looking you dead in the eye and dare you to challenge at the risk of A, insulting your grandmother, and B, losing your turn. Anyway, one of the best memories of this lady was only four or five years ago when she got very aggressive about learning how to fly fish, which is something all 90-year-olds should do. This was a bit of a trick because Granny only had part of one lung. She was a multiple-time cancer beater and had acquiesced to life with an oxygen tank only a few years prior. I honestly think this lady was a certifiable genius based on how sharp she was, especially when you consider how many brain cells she donated due to lack of oxygen over the years. She hated the oxygen tank. She was definitely a little vain and proud, but she didn't want to be limited by this thing that had to be refilled and recharged and how much was in there. Her supply was a visible meter and all of us had to pay attention to it. So anyway... There we were, standing on the banks of the Boulder River in mid-July, Montana. I was well prepared because years ago, I had made a meager living teaching people how to fly cast. Every day, for most of every summer, brought a new set of beginners who wanted to learn. And every day, I'd repeat what I had the day before. Broad tip high. Back, stop. Forward, stop. Follow your fly with your rod tip. Now, Granny was an angler. She was super proud about uh, catching a halibut up in Alaska one time, catching trout off the riverbanks, 
And for whatever reason, I had it in my mind that uh, Granny had known how to fly fish, even though she said she didn't. I thought this was like a senior moment she was having. And sure enough, after only half a dozen casts, she was incrementally adding line and casting further, uh, not getting tangled up or hooking stuff behind her, and she was dropping the fly on the water. I said, Graham, I knew you knew how to do this. She said, no, Ryan, when you're my age and you want to learn something, you listen and do it. You don't have any time to waste. We were really fortunate that day. The Boulder River out of Big Timber, Montana is known for windy days and we had zero wind. The water level on the boulder can often be too high and fast for most anglers or too low and bony that a one-lunged old lady couldn't safely walk to where the fish were. But we had the in-between. The river hadn't fully dropped. There was a side channel within casting distance of the bank, and there were a few trout visible just below the surface. Granny got a couple of eats. I kept changing flies to entice them again and again, but she didn't quite have the hook set. But it was amazing, right? She could see the fish coming up for the fly. She was doing it all on her own. She got it. It was incredible. Unfortunately, before we'd caught anything, she was getting noticeably tired and out of breath. I said, you know, we should probably call it. And I got to tell you, man, if looks could kill, I mean, I would have been stone dead on that river. And then I remembered to look at the oxygen tank and noticed that the old gal had turned her oxygen down to the lowest setting in order to preserve gas and fishing time. My kind of lady, right? So after discovering this, I rolled up the oxygen flow, turned it up to 11, as they say, and the effects were immediate. So much so that when Granny couldn't quite get the distance out of her cast, she, without asking and giving no notice, charged into the river. So focused on the fish, she just believed, I guess, that the current and the snot-slick river rocks could not harm her. I, on the other hand, in mild cardiac arrest, imagining having to explain the drowning of a frail old woman to 10 kids and 27 grandchildren, managed to just reach out and grab, in the nick of time, a combination of shirt tail, her underwear, and part of her pants. And I'll tell you that no matter how old you get, if you find yourself holding up your grandmother by her underpants, it is not a comfortable situation. But, as we are now knee-deep in the river, by the stretch of the elastic band of her unders, and maybe some sort of divine intervention, she reached just far enough out to the last unfazed trout in the riffle, and it ate. This being a famed Boulder River brown trout, it ate slow, perfectly matching Granny's hook set, and we had a fish on. Rod bent, fish pulling, and it was just magic. It was amazing. But to let you down, full disclosure, the hook broke. Specifically, my hook broke, the one that I had tied on, and she knew it. When the trout came off, I said, Graham, you did everything right, but the, you know, the line broke. And Granny said, no, the hook broke. You must have used a rusty hook. And she was right. So here's some takeaways. Don't listen to people who say they can't go. Think of my one-lunged, cancer-riddled grandma. Often, it is the desire that holds you back, not the physical condition. 
So don't bitch about how certain things are not for you if you don't have the determination to at least try them. Two, use fresh hooks. And three, save your oxygen for when it's needed. But when it is, turn it up to 11. Moving on to the owl desk. For the first time since Wyoming ornithologists have been keeping track of such things, a breeding pair of barred owls has been discovered in the state. While barred owls are not native to North America, they are not native to the western half of the continent. Their presence in Wyoming is interesting to amateur birders, but it's making ornithologists in the state nervous. That's because barred owls are generalists. When you're trying to survive as a species, it's best to not be a picky eater, and barred owls eat just about anything from small mammals like mice and rabbits to larger mammals like possums to other birds to frogs to crayfish. Barred owls can also be territorial and aggressive. These attributes have let them expand their range north into Canada and west into Pacific states like Washington, Oregon, and California. They've especially been a problem in Washington state, where their presence has led to a reduction in the endangered spotted owl population. Spotted owls are less aggressive and more specialized eaters, and they often can't compete when barred owls move into an area. The problem was so bad, in fact, that federal wildlife officials in the U.S. and Canada have lethally removed barred owls from the landscape. That strategy has been controversial, but appears to be effective. According to a 2021 study, the spotted owl population stabilized in areas where barred owls were removed, but continued to decline by 12% per year in areas where barred owls were not removed. This is why Wyoming ornithologists are concerned. There are no spotted owls in Wyoming, but the state does have native owl species like the great horned owl and the great gray owl. Great horned owls are also generalists and even more aggressive than barred owls, so there doesn't seem to be much concern about them. But Catherine Gura of the Teton Raptor Center told Wyophile that she's concerned about gray owls. She said there isn't much research on how gray owls and barred owls interact, so biologists will have to monitor the situation closely. Comparing the diets of the two species on the Audubon Society website, gray owls look more like spotted owls than barred owls. They feed on mainly small mammals like voles and gophers and only rarely branch out to frogs. A species' survival depends on more than just diet, and this is the first breeding pair of barred owls to be observed in the state. But it's easy to see why biologists are concerned. Hearing or seeing an owl is one of the coolest things that can happen in the woods. Barred owls are similar in size to great horned owls, but lack the horns. They are similar in profile to great gray owls, but are smaller and have black eyes in contrast to the great gray's distinct yellow eyes. This is what a barred owl hoot sounds like, and you may have recognized the call as one of Clay Newcomb's favorites. Barred owls have a distinctive call, but great horned owls have what you might call a classic owl hoot. And to round out our owl choir, here's what a great gray owl sounds like. Now, the next time you're chasing elk in the woods of Wyoming, you'll be ready to identify at least three of the state's owl species. Good luck. Which of you listening right now took a class in school about Family Finances 101? No one? Yeah, me neither. Just like the importance of a will 
or college savings plan or even life insurance or estate planning, we have to know these things. But how do we figure it all out? That's why I'm excited to partner with Fabric by Gerber Life. Listen, one of the few things expected of you in life is to not let other people pick up after you. That's why I have life insurance, to make sure my stuff is taken care of even when I'm gone. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You could be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash cal. That's meetfabric.com slash cal. M-E-E-T, fabric.com slash cal. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Moving on to the Mule Deer Desk. We saw two stories about California mule deer this week that show off how different areas can have drastically different population dynamics. First, on Catalina Island off the coast of Los Angeles, officials are backing a plan to shoot mule deer from helicopters. The Catalina Island Conservancy says that the introduced mule deer population has grown well beyond the island's capacity to sustain. By overbrowsing and trampling native plants, the deer are destroying the island's ecosystem and threatening native species like the Catalina fox, ground squirrel, and quail. Overbrowsing is also causing soil erosion, which can negatively impact aquatic habitats and species. To deal with this growing problem, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife is planning a management program that involves culling much of the 1,800 deer herd. Hunting is legal on the island with proper tags, but this apparently hasn't been enough to stop population growth. So the Conservancy and the Department of Fish and Wildlife are planning to work with a private management contractor to eliminate as much of the herd as possible. As you can imagine, some of the island's residents aren't too happy. An online petition has been circulating trying to put a stop to the slaughter of the animals. They're not killing their deer, the petition reads. They're killing your deer. 
The petition says that older generations of people on the island still rely on the deer for food and that eliminating all the deer isn't necessary. They say the Conservancy and the state haven't done enough to increase hunting on the island and these groups have failed to engage with residents or given them alternatives. I gotta say here real quick, I've researched uh, hunting deer on Catalina and it's not straightforward. It's a little soupy from what I've seen. They really try to push it towards uh, only hunt with outfitters, which, you know, I got nothing against hunting with outfitters. Just wasn't what I was looking to do when uh, I was looking to hunt out there on Catalina. The Humane Society has also gotten into the action. A member of the Catalina Island Humane Society says that the deer have been on the island for over 100 years and, quote, their gentle presence is an integral part of our island's natural appeal. She calls for non-lethal solutions like immunocontraceptives, but is also open to allowing ethical and responsible deer hunters to balance the population, which is like the best thing out of the Humane Society you could ever hear. Uh, this is not Humane Society of the U.S., by the way. By the time you hear this, the final decision may have already been made, but as of this recording, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife has yet to make a final determination. There may be too many mule deer on Catalina Island, but the population on the California mainland may be headed in the opposite direction. A new report from the Road Ecology Center at UC Davis notes that the number of mule deer vehicle collisions decreased by about 10% per year between 2016 and 2022. While this is good for Golden State drivers, it's not a great sign for the mule deer population as a whole. The report notes that vehicle collisions can indicate population trends, especially if there aren't big changes to traffic or wildlife movement. Sure enough, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife has also reported a statewide decline of about 1% per year in mule deer populations over the 26 years preceding 2016. The report concludes, quote, In one to two decades, statewide mule deer may be reduced to the low hundreds of thousands, jeopardizing human enjoyment of this common keystone animal and important carnivore food sources. That's a pretty sobering thought as California deer hunters head out into the field this year, but it's not a problem that's going to go away on its own. Moving on to the legislative desk. A few weeks ago, I told you about a new initiative by the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks to get public feedback on a statewide deer baiting ban. The agency wants to, quote, explore issues surrounding baiting and wildlife and investigate how baiting impacts chronic wasting disease. It's pretty clear from the agency statements that they're open to a baiting ban, but want to get public input before making a decision. Now, at least one Kansas state legislator is threatening to defund the entire Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks if they move forward with the baiting ban. State Rep. Lewis Bloom said at a public hearing, quote, If you consider banning baiting, we're going to take a million dollars off the top of your budget immediately, and then we will go through every line item bit by bit and take off everything we can possibly find. One of his allies is State Rep. Ken Corbett, who serves as the chair of the Agricultural and Natural Resources Budget Committee. Local media has pointed out that Corbett owns a lodge in Topeka that offers deer hunting for thousands of dollars per person. While baiting is already illegal on public land, it is still legal on private land, which to me is like the most jackass way to run a state. Public hunters, you have to have a certain set of rules, while as private land hunters, you get 
a totally different set of rules, even though what you are hunting, either on public land or private land, is public wildlife. Some argue that Corbett is using the power of the state government to protect his own personal financial interests. It'll be a bit harder to guarantee high-dollar clients that they'll bag a booner buck if they can't set out a pile of corn. Kansas deer hunters don't sleep on this one. I'm sure this won't be the last time we cover this issue. The National Park Service and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service have released a draft plan to restore grizzly bears to the North Cascades ecosystem in northern Washington state. The North Cascades is one of the two grizzly bear recovery areas with no known populations, and the agencies say natural migration is unlikely to repopulate them. So they've come up with a 303-page document outlining three alternatives. Under the first alternative, no action would be taken. Under alternatives B and C, three to seven grizzly bears would be released into the Northern Cascades each year over roughly five to ten years, with the goal of establishing an initial population of 25 grizzly bears before switching to adaptive management. Alternative B would manage the population as, quote, threatened, and Alternative C would manage the bears as a non-essential experimental population under Section 10J of the Endangered Species Act. As we've covered before, giving the bears a 10J status would give wildlife managers more flexibility to respond to depredation events and other bear-human conflicts. The agencies have opened a 45-day comment window for the public to voice their concerns, That comment period ends November 13th, and you can find a link to comment at themeateater.com forward slash cal. I gotta tell you, very interesting proposal here, Washingtonians. I'd like you to just consider how many grizzly bears we kill due to conflicts in states like Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho. Idaho has a population of 1.9 million. Wyoming has a population of 578,803. Montana has a population of 1.1 million. Washington has a population of 7.739 million. Grizzly bears get killed due to human conflict. In the lower 48, that's the only way they get killed, is human conflict. We're not talking about hunting. I don't think it's going to take the state of Washington very long to run out of grizzly bears if they do introduce them. Moving on, New York State is dealing with the fallout of a recent law that requires a background check to purchase all types of ammunition. Thanks to listener Tom Levy for sending this one in. The state background check system launched September 13, and as of September 28th, It's approved 8,300 ammunition transactions. That's according to Spectrum News 1. But reports are surfacing of approval delays, and even some high-ranking retired law enforcement officers have been denied. County sheriffs from upstate communities are pushing back, arguing that the background checks won't stop criminals from obtaining ammunition. Most criminals get their guns and ammo from illicit sources, and the state already required a background check for firearms purchases. Multiple challenges against the state's gun laws are pending in federal court, and the U.S. Supreme Court recently held an emergency conference to consider a challenge to New York's concealed carry law, which included background checks on ammo. Over in Washington state, 11 animal rights groups submitted a petition to lighten the guidelines that govern when wolves can be killed for attacking livestock. They say too many wolves are dying needlessly under the current system, and they want to see the state deny more permits to kill wolves. 
How many wolves are being killed under the current regime? About six per year. Uh, That's six per year. Uh, Six. According to an annual report published by the Department of Fish and Wildlife, 44 wolves have been killed due to livestock conflicts since 2012, and six were killed last year. That's six wolves out of a total of 216 canines and 37 packs. The department argues that the standards are already strict and that they're doing much of what these groups are demanding. But that's not good enough. Presumably, these 11 animal rights groups want to see that number drop down to zero. They've submitted a petition to the Washington Fish and Wildlife Commission, which will take it up at an upcoming meeting. I think what they need to do is probably talk to the wolves themselves, who are, of course, the number one predator of wolves. Speaking of animal rights groups, the Wild Earth Guardians filed a petition in federal court last month to stop Montana's wolf trapping season. They say that setting traps for wolves in grizzly bear habitat will lead to unintentional bear killings, which they say violates the Endangered Species Act. How many bears get caught in traps set for wolves? The lawsuit claims that there have been, quote, 21 verified grizzly bears caught in leg hold traps set for coyotes and wolves in Montana. The suit doesn't include a timeline. A little internet sleuthing reveals that their data includes all the bears caught since 1990. That's about half a bear per year. You might argue that the grizzly population has been growing, so we can expect the rate of captures to increase. But a little more sleuthing reveals that only six bears have been caught in wolf traps since 2010, and the word is caught, not killed, Many of those bears survived the traps, albeit with some pretty nasty wounds. But there's an even bigger picture here that deserves a mention. For many years, Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana have been trying to get grizzlies delisted so the state agencies can take over management. Wild Earth Guardians is using this lawsuit to argue that Montana can't be trusted to do that. They say Montana is using a, quote, archaic approach to wildlife management, and that this, quote, proves Montana cannot manage grizzly bears if they are delisted. With human-bear conflicts on the rise and a population topping 2,000, I'll let you decide whether a half a bear per year is enough to prove that Montana can't manage the bears in its state. Moving on to the mailbag desk. Listener James Morton wrote in to tell me about a controversial deer call in Youngstown, Ohio. City and state officials approved a proposal to allow 331 hunters to go after white-tailed deer in Mill Creek Metro Park. As we've covered on this podcast before, this is a common way that metro areas manage an overabundance of deer. Hunting is not usually allowed in city parks, but this year archery and gun hunters will be permitted to take six antlerless deer each that won't count against their usual bag limits. The park will be open during archery season, but closed during gun hunts. There's usually some amount of local controversy around these hunts, but in this case, the opposition is serious. Opponents of the hunt say in a petition that they've worried about hunters accidentally injuring pets and children. On the campaign's GoFundMe, which has raised over $11,000, they argue that seeing deer helps relieve anxiety. Quote, neighbors close to our park can sit on their deck, sip their coffee, and enjoy the breathtaking deer should they make an appearance. These folks have already tried and failed to stop the hunt in county court, but now they've threatened to appeal that loss to a higher court. James tells me that there's also a Facebook group where opponents are threatening to throw firecrackers in the hunting zones and use portable speakers to scare deer away from hunters. 
This Facebook group has since been deleted, probably because members were openly plotting to break the law. For any of you planning to participate in the Mill Creek deer hunt, here's a little info that might come in handy. Section 1533.03 of the Ohio Revised Code prohibits hunter harassment. This includes placing oneself in a location that might affect the behavior of wildlife or, quote, creating a visual, oral, olfactory, or physical stimulus intended to affect the behavior of the wild animal being hunted. In other words, it's illegal in Ohio to intentionally scare deer away from lawful hunters. Under this statute, hunters have the ability to secure a restraining order against people who engage in this kind of behavior. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to write in to A-S-K-C-A-L, that's Cal at TheMeatEater.com, and let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods. On top of that, do you kind of feel like uh, it's fall already? Like snow is right around the corner? We're getting snow on mountaintops right now. You could probably use a clean, quiet, dependable, pro-level, steel battery-operated chainsaw, or even like a microchip auto-tuning gas-powered chainsaw that's going to buck up wood faster than you can reach out and grab your granny by your unders. How's that? www.steeldealers.com. Find a local knowledgeable steel dealer near you. They're going to get you set up with what you need, and they won't send you home with what you don't. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some access deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com and use promo code cal for 20 percent off your first order outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems things like hard starts rough performance and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer simply pour a can in your gas tank hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. That's SeafoamWorks.com to learn more.